0: Welcome to another episode of Inside Intercom. I'm John Collins. The annual SaaS Talk conference takes place in Dublin, Ireland, very close to our office in the city. So we decided to take advantage of having so many industry experts in the one place and took our studio along to the event. Thanks to our partnership with the SaaS Revolution podcast, we got to talk to some of the top practitioners, advisors, and investors at the fastest growing SaaS companies around. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be sharing those interviews so that you can apply some of their lessons learned to growing your own business. Our first guest in this series is David Scott, the highly regarded entrepreneur-turned-venture capitalist with Matrix Partners in Boston, where he's led investments in success stories like HubSpot, Zendesk, JBoss, and AppIQ. If you haven't already consumed everything on his Far Entrepreneurs blog, well then head over there now for some in-depth tactical advice on starting and running a company. It's particularly strong on the whole area of metrics for SaaS companies, where David has literally written the book. We delved into metrics and why they're so important, but unique when it comes to SaaS businesses.
1: Particularly needed it internally because every time I went to my partners and tried to explain to them why we were losing so much money at HubSpot as we were growing quickly, that that was actually a good thing and not a bad thing, and they were having epileptic fits about it. What are the leading
0: indicators he looks for in all his early stage investments? The
1: first is I'm looking for really clear signs of product market fit. And to me, that means that they have genuinely happy customers who are actually using the products.
0: And the importance of finding the right kind of salesperson to head up your team in the early days.
1: In the early days, you don't have a playbook. And the whole idea of this phase is to actually design that playbook and come up with it. So before you have it, you need a pathfinder, trailblazer type of person who's actually good at figuring out who are you going to sell to, who in the organization, what messages to use, what price points to use, what kinds of product features are essential to develop that, that are maybe missing all of those things have to be figured out and that early stage of figuring out that's a special talent
0: before we dive in just a quick reminder that if you could give us a like review or rating as applicable on whatever podcast platform you listen on that will go a long way towards introducing inside intercom to lots more new listeners but for now over to sas you're
2: listening to inside intercom intercom making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com.
0: David, welcome to Inside Intercom. Thank Uh, you. Since it's your debut on our podcast, could you tell us a little bit about your background,
1: your career to date, and your current role at Matrix? Yeah, certainly. So um, I graduated from university with a computer science degree. Um, started looking around and working and, and, and accidentally got into writing myself a software program to solve a problem and, and um, started my first company by accident as a result of that. Uh, I did a total of five startups. And the last two of them were backed by Matrix Partners which is a venture capital firm that I had a lot of respect for. And having done five startups, I kind of felt like I was ready to move into a, another phase where I was helping other people do their startups as opposed to doing another one myself. And venture capital is a great place to go. So I joined them and um, I've been investing in SaaS, um, probably two of my better known investments might be Zendesk and HubSpot. That, um, folks might know of uh, so kind of an accidental entrepreneur at, at the beginning yes <laughs> yes it was it was in the days you know way, way before uh, there was venture capital in the country that i was working in or any of those kinds of there's no entrepreneurial ecosystem or anything like that at all uh we, we can probably talk about
0: the pros and cons of that if you like i mean i think you know there's almost this uh entrepreneurship being almost like rock and roll i think a little bit in some places is yes yes maybe it's not so helpful not not such a great thing
1: in all ways yeah So how did you particularly get involved in SaaS, or what was your first exposure to to SaaS? Yeah, so all of my life I'd been doing B2B software sales, and as soon as SaaS came out, it was really apparent to me that this was a big breakthrough, both in uh, the way to get at small and medium sized businesses who had not previously been able to buy technology because they didn't have IT departments but secondly even in selling to the enterprise it was an unbelievable breakthrough because you didn't have to have the IT department involved to get the approval and you could just simply have somebody testing the product over the internet without having a you know long complex server install and all sorts of difficult uh, processes there so it was all over it in a very big way right in
0: the early days. Presumably the infrastructure though has improved a lot since then I mean in the early days definitely
1: the, the theory was ahead of the, maybe the reality a little bit. That's right. I think Salesforce was one of the very early players, and they and the infrastructure really wasn't ready in those days. It was, I think, in 2000 and sort of six, seven started to get better. 2008, I think, was really the very beginning of the big wave that happened. Yeah,
0: and I mean, you've kind of, uh, with your writing on for entrepreneurs, you've I think really sort of carved out a, a reputation as the kind of the, the metrics guy, and you're one of the first people to write about a lot of the, the core metrics for for SaaS.
1: Why is it that that metrics are so important for SaaS businesses? Yeah, so there's a a few things to say here. The first one is that most of the time, investors have looked at something very straightforward in the form of metrics to evaluate a company, and those are GAAP financial accounting metrics. It turns out that the GAAP financial metrics just don't work at all for a recurring revenue business. And so I felt there was an essential need for something to be rewritten around that topic, and particularly needed it internally because every time I went to my partners and ex- tried to explain to them why we were losing so much money at HubSpot as we were growing quickly that that was actually a good thing and not a bad thing and they were having epileptic fits about it. So that was the first point there. The second point though is that this is actually one of the f- best business models I've seen where an understanding of metrics can have a huge impact on how well you run the business because it's super sensitive to small changes on various different items, like how well do you do the upselling into your current customer base, and what your churn rates are, can have a gigantic impact on whether you're going to be a successful business or not. And then the last thing I'd say about metrics is that I found them to be a spectacular way to get alignment in a company and drive the entire team towards performing to a common goal. And so if you understand what the right metrics are, they can be an incredible tool for an executive CEO to create the alignment and to get the company uh, to focus on achieving something. Because as soon as you start publishing a particular set of metrics, automatically people start working to improve those. So uh, yeah, the old classic, what gets measured, gets done? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: if there was one sort of metric that you think you see a lot of SaaS businesses maybe overlook, or there's one that you think is just essential, I mean, what is the one that you would recommend to entrepreneurs to really pay attention to? So,
1: it isn't quite as simple as, as you would like me to make it. Um, I would say it's somewhat stage-specific, and one thing I, I kind of fear a little bit is that my, my early writings on CAC and LTV got too many people to focus on that too early. That's the wrong time to focus on it when you don't have a really fully repeatable and scalable model. But to me, the, probably one of the most important things for any SaaS entrepreneur to get right is I believe you must have negative churn to have a long-term successful SaaS business. And that means that you're able to get more expansion revenue from the customers that stay with you than you lose from the customers that churn. Mm -hmm. And that requires you to have a very flexible pricing scheme. So when somebody starts with you, they can start small, but you have additional modules to sell them on. So as they grow, you are, or you are able to upsell them into additional things. So sometimes that's a variable pricing axis, mm-hmm. like usage, number of people using the product. In the case of HubSpot, the usage would be tracked by how many leads you had in the system. Um, sometimes it's different versions of the product, an enterprise version, or a. sometimes it's other modules. But you do need to think carefully about the packaging and structuring of product packaging and pricing to enable you to get negative churn. And I think um, that was an interesting lesson that, uh, that we had to learn at HubSpot, where we had initially one product at one price point and nothing else. <laughs> well, I think that was quite a common approach. I
0: mean, Intercom did the same thing. It was just like, let's charge $50 because we want to see if, if people will pay for this. Yep. Um, yeah. And I presume, I mean, do you think that, that advice is still Uh, valid because I think people spend a huge amount of time agonizing over pricing in the SaaS world and and maybe, you know, at an early stage, you're just better off figuring right. out, do people want to pay for it at all?
1: Right. right. Yeah. That, that's exactly what I meant by it's very stage specific. So right now I'm really, I'm really spending a lot of time on trying to break the journey for an entrepreneur down into nine steps. Okay. And one of my crucial things to people is don't worry about pricing until you've reached the point where you've really clearly shown that you have a very repeatable and scalable process because it's a total waste of time. It's the wrong thing to be optimizing. And you, as you say, the first thing to optimize is, can we simply sell this? thing. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And in those early days, you want as many customers as possible, not the optimal amount of money from every customer. Yeah. So that's kind of a later metric to focus on as opposed to an earlier one. Although I presume the temptation there then is to charge a very low ball price which probably isn't isn't a great idea either. I mean- yeah, but you know, to be honest in the in the very early days, I don't mind if companies charge a low ball price as long as they really can show that they can get a high velocity going with, with selling that because it's relatively easy to start moving that price upwards uh, as soon as you've gotten the clarity that you're really truly providing value to your customer.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, I mean obviously you mentioned a couple of uh, your very successful investments, Zendesk, HubSpot, namely more recently. What are the kind of leading indicators you look for in, in early, you know, early stage investments?
1: Yeah, so I'm looking for two things. The first is I'm looking for really clear signs of product market fit. And to me, that means that they have genuinely happy customers who are actually using the products. So I will look at metrics that are often not provided to me in the investment deck. Like I want to actually look at every customer that's ever bought this product and understand what their usage patterns were over time, and then track to see what the what's happening in terms of churn rates uh, by cohort, not just a general, you know, high-level metric on that. Then this, you know, once I move past product market fit, the number one thing I'm looking for is Have they built a repeatable and scalable growth process? And is that growth process keeping the customers happy and is it actually profitable? So my way I look at that is pretty simple. I look at bookings and are bookings growing consistently? So let's define bookings because it's actually a dangerous term in the SaaS world. Bookings is net new ARR that's added and I will look at a quarterly net new ARR number and I want to see that number increasing quarter after quarter after quarter consistently. Very easy to say on the microphone here today, (laughs) really hard to do in practice. Uh, In order to pull that off, it means you have to have cracked how to find more and more and more leads. And secondly, it has to show that you've actually understood how to onboard new salespeople and consistently make them more productive, uh, make them more productive as they join. And you understand what to do and you have a playbook that's kind of working in that mode. Now, we often don't see people that are anywhere near as good as I'm actually saying, But I'm looking for, you know, how far are they they on that journey? And do they understand what that journey looks like? And do they show that they have very strong evidence of getting there? And uh, so maybe like in terms of HubSpot, what was it that kind of sealed the deal for you? Um, so HubSpot, great founders, really a key part of what, one of the things that we look for, really an outstanding pair of people who meshed very well together. Uh, and they did have this really strong evidence. Their product, it turns out, was terrible actually in the early days and was one of the things that we had to fix later on. But they had cracked something important, which is they cracked creating a movement They understood that inbound marketing, this new way of selling, was really powerful. And they created a movement around that. And so we saw that that movement was powerful and that they would get enough time to be able to fix the product. It The interesting thing about HubSpot is that they didn't actually have a product person in the team in the early days. And we didn't realize that until we were in the investment. And so we then went to work very hard on trying to help them fix and understand what that person looked like and help them to, to, to solve it.
0: Which is very interesting. So basically, you know, you don't have to be a product first company necessarily to,
1: to succeed. You can, you can be really strong at marketing or some other aspect of the business. That's dead right. In fact, one of the big arguments that I have with one of my partners is, is which is better, to be product first or um, very strong on sales and marketing?
0: I, I noticed you didn't say marketing first. <laughs> oh, actually, marketing sales, right, yeah. Okay. Uh, I wasn't sure if that was intentional or just... Uh, yeah. Yeah, because uh, yeah, I think you've... Obviously, the other thing as well as metrics you've, you've written about or advised on is, is for entrepreneurs how to you know onboard a sales team or when to, to, to engage with sales.
1: Yeah, I'm passionate about funnels. I really love and have been studying funnels for, for years and years. And today I told a story about my first startup where I was stuck with a nine-month sales cycle selling CAD systems to architects. And I was very frustrated by this, so I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and came up with an idea, put this idea into motion, took all the money that we had made in the company over the last seven years, took this huge bet and ran this event for one day. And halfway through that uh, day, the first customer came up and said, can I place an order? And I would not anticipated that that would happen, so I got my assistant to run down and type up a, an order form, and they hand-filled it in. By the end of that day, we'd done four million in business, which was as much as we'd done in the prior 12 months. So we took a nine-month sales cycle and busted it down to one day. And I've been applying those principles of, of what I did there and that's what I talked about this morning in my, my talk here, which is how to get inside of your buyer's head and really understand their emotional reactions to the, the thing that you're trying to sell them, the process that you're trying to use to sell them, and use that insight how they, of how they think to really unlock great breakthroughs.
0: And kind of ironically, that probably means, like, getting out of the office or certainly,
1: oh, yeah. you know, yeah, talking
0: got, to potential customers, yes. meeting
1: them and looking them in the eye. Yes, yes. and you, And you want somebody who... Um, This was always just a natural thing for me, but I see that it's not that natural at most companies. You've got somebody who intentionally does all their thinking from the customer standpoint never thinks about things from the vendor standpoint, but is always analysing what you're doing as a company from the buyer's point of view. What, how are they going to react to you asking for their email address on your website? How are they going to react to this free trial thing that you, get, you want them to do? How are they going to react to being asked to come to this event? Uh, those sorts of questions going on in their, mi- in their mind. And of course, all that's
0: changing because you know forms used to be a big thing on websites. Now it's all about getting people to, to yeah, interact to you on chat i mean these well, that,
1: that was a great um, redesign actually because I, I definitely think those forms were an annoyance to the customer if ever anytime you wanted to get a little piece of content somebody would stick this damned annoying thing say you have got to give me your email address and you know nobody wants to give their email address away so if you're in the buyer's mind you'll understand that's a bad thing to ask them for and my advice to entrepreneurs is treat the customer like a bank account Make a deposit before you can make a withdrawal. So give them something of value Mm -hmm. up front instead of asking them for something and then giving them something of value and that will work much better for you. It's like you have to earn the right to sell to them almost. You have to earn the right, exactly. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode.
0: You, um, obviously, I I touched on your, uh, your incredible blog, For Entrepreneurs. You've been doing that for quite a while. When did you start writing and why? I mean, is it, is it the classic sort of there's, there's more money than, than uh, good investments out there, so you kind of need to do a bit of PR as a, as a VC?
1: No, it never came from that standpoint, actually. When I started, there was not at all clear that would have any kind of a benefit for me as a VC. I really love educating and helping people. It's just kind of a very core fundamental thing about what drives me and gives me satisfaction in life. So. Um, I didn't. I started the blog mostly because HubSpot was telling me that blogging was the future, and I thought, okay, if I'm going to be an investor in this company, I better understand what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> Had no clue that it would be in remotely interesting to anybody. And then discovered, hey, this is actually interesting to people and, and got pleasure out of the fact that it was helping people. So I continue to, to yeah. write for that reason.
0: So you joined the inbound movement yourself? In I terms did, of... yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, I get the sense you, you mentioned some of those early articles and you definitely were one of the first people to write about things like LTV and CAC. Yeah. Almost became too popular, you feel,
1: at this stage or maybe have now become to be sort of seen out of context? Yes, I think the one, and, and I had to write an, another post recently, which is when is the right time to think about LTV and CAC? For exactly the reason that if you don't have a repeatable process and you're not uh, generating leads using things that are paid sources, you're, you're, you're not you know, beyond the stage where it's all organic, you're not really ready to understand what your CAC is or what your LTV is. So I do think it's helpful for companies to have an awareness of LTV and CAC and understand that, for example, if they're using an inside sales organization, they're gonna have a CAC that's roughly in the 500 to maybe $10,000 per customer range. Mm. So that way they can understand if I don't price this thing at least a thousand dollars or yeah. so I'm not going to be able to make money out of this um, sales approach. here. Yeah. So I think it's useful to have an awareness of it, but to be trying to be overly focused on the accuracy of that metric when you're too early, that's a mistake. Yeah. And I, I kind of regret the fact that I put it out there without that caveat. <laughs> of, okay, wait, wait a second, guys, don't calculate this. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I see occasionally that's um, a flaw that I, I probably helped to create was an obsession with accuracy and metrics. Mm-hmm. So um, what is the power of metrics? metrics can really help you make smarter decisions. And it turns out with CAC and LTV, one of the most powerful decisions it can help you understand is which customer segment is your most profitable customer segment and which customer segments are not profitable. So you can either do one of two things there. You can focus all your marketing energy on getting to the right segment, and you may cut out the segment that's not that profitable. Or you could decide, well, let's let's go and analyze the segment that was not profitable. So let's take HubSpot in this particular case here. They were selling to VSBs, very small businesses, and it was highly unprofitable. They had like a 1.5 LTV to CAC ratio, but they found something interesting by doing that analysis, which was their partner channel, they had a really good six to one LTV to CAC ratio. And the cool thing was that the partners were actually selling to the VSBs. So they cut out selling to the VSBs, tripled down on the channel partners, and use the channel partners to sell to the VSBs. Okay. So that was a case where that's where LTV to CAC is really super helpful in providing you with these insights about how to change and run your business differently. And that agency model has been hugely successful for HubSpot. So it's really interesting that's that's where it came from. That's where it came from, exactly, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And again, accuracy, ultimate levels of accuracy are not the crucial thing here. It's can you get enough accuracy that you're able to understand your business well enough to be able to get these insights and drive the business correctly?
0: I think it's like what direction are things headed in, rather than what's yes. the actual current stage, is more important. Is that the that's correct? Yeah, way people should think about it. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I know I know uh, we've certainly at different stages agonised over the accuracy of, of uh, different data points, but ultimately,
1: if it's directionally it, it, correct, it directionally correct, and allows you to make the decisions that you need to make, then then you are, you're good enough. Yeah. Yeah. You've uh, described
0: a startup's life cycle as being split into to three phases. Yes. Can you? Maybe talk a little bit more about those three phases and give us a bit more detail on the distinct characteristics of each of them.
1: Yeah. So where this came from is that the the book Lean Startup got published and it was a terrific book and it focused on the, the first phase, which I call finding a search for a product market fit phase. And you had the impression if you read that book that as soon as you found product market fit, you were ready to scale. And it turns out that's actually true for B2C businesses, but not true for B2B businesses at all. And there was a missing phase that nobody had written about. And I call that such a repeatable, scalable, and profitable growth process. And that's a phase that I'm really very focused on right now, trying to document and helping entrepreneurs understand what's involved in that. And I've actually busted down into five sub-phases And it starts with the founder being able to figure out how to sell the product. Then the founder has to be able to figure out how to take a non-founder and get them to sell the product. And then once they have a non-founder successfully selling it, they need to create a scalable unit and start trying to see if they can scale this and does the lead source scale, if that works, typically I found that as soon as you start scaling, things break on a customer success standpoint, so you've got to go back and revisit customer success, and sometimes that means changing who you sell to, not selling to certain customer segments because they're actually not happy with what your product, they're not the right fit for it.
0: So that kind of goes back to the work that HubSpot were doing when they analyzed their their uh, segments that weren't profitable.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And then the last piece of it is figuring out how to make it all profitable, and oftentimes that means looking at the gross margins, which you shouldn't pay attention to too early your pricing, optimizing your pricing, Calc and LTV. So, those stages there, what I figured out is that. A lot of people try to skip the stages and rush things by hiring a ton of salespeople before they've got a repeatable sales motion. That's a huge mistake. And so it's really crucial to understand where you are and to execute the step that you're in and finish that step before you jump to the next step. Uh, Otherwise, you'll end up burning a ton of cash and having to go backwards to to finish that step off.
0: It sounds like it's probably not the glamorous work compared to, say, the early stage product market fit, like founders love working on product. Scaling up is
1: kind of glamorous, but there's this
0: really important step. In the, in the middle that you've got to get right, which is probably poring over
1: spreadsheets most of the time. It is, yeah, and it's, it's a, it, an awful lot of um, execution. I often think that vision is about one-tenth and, and uh, execution is nine-tenths. So finding great people that are really strong at execution is very, very crucial at that stage. And I also have another thing I sort of comment on, There's that you want um, what I call a pathfinder, trailblazer type of person. So a typical salesperson is used to working from a playbook, and in the early days, you don't have a playbook, and the whole idea of this phase is to actually design that playbook and come up with it. So before you have it, you need a pathfinder, trailblazer type of person who's actually good at figuring out you know, who are you gonna to sell to, who in the organization, what messages to use, what price points to use, what kinds of um, product features are essential to develop that, that may be missing? All of those things have to be figured out. Yeah. And that early stage of figuring out, that's a, that's a special talent, but that talent will not work in normal regular selling environments, so you have to try and figure out how to keep them in the company and use them again when you've got a new product introduction.
0: Yeah, so your basis, the early stage salesperson is going to be very different than the one you have a, a year, 18 months down the line.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think one of the things uh, we've been looking at a lot recently is the whole area of sales ops. You know, I think it's a very, very interesting function, but a lot of startups probably don't invest in it early, early on enough. Yes. I mean, is that something that sales ops maybe needs to be hired for early on, or?
1: I, I believe in the SaaS business, sales ops is a very, very valuable function and should be hired pretty early on. So at the stage where you might have as few as three or four salespeople. Okay. Um, and the reason why is that sales ops can have a huge role in two things. One of them is codifying what you're learning, creating this playbook and documenting this playbook and creating it in such a way that when you hire a new salesperson, they can be immediately trained and get up to speed far more quickly. Because that investment in a new salesperson, incredibly high expense to the company. Yeah. And if you're not good at bringing them up to speed, a lot of companies just do a very poor job of that onboarding experience. So I see sales ops as being great in that area. Then I think the other thing is that they are outstanding at, at figuring out the metrics of what's actually going on and using the metrics to drive different behaviours and different decisions, uh, finding the insights in what's happening in the business.
0: It's, it's very different than the salesperson even of five, ten years ago, isn't it? It's a very different type of person who succeeds. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. We're, we're talking about in a world where it used to be an art form. Now we are both a science and an art. And the sales ops person is the person who really gets the science part of it and is using the data to help drive the important decisions. And there's huge insights to be found in that data in today's world right uh, we were
0: talking before we started about bots and, and the role of bots but I mean I think there's there's a massive shift towards just generally AI machine learning and automation yeah and I think sales is probably one of the areas that's going to have a massive impact on how do you see that relationship between automation and salespeople playing out in the near term
1: yeah it's a great question I, I do think we're this we're still in the very early stages but over time it 's going to have a very big impact particularly because the customer has a, a great deal of um, of of joy in finding a way to go through the sales process without having to have a salesperson involved. So where you can use a bot um, in the early stages before the customer's really detailed and clearly decided to buy something, that's a very good place for a, if you can get the bot to help them, it's a much more comfortable interaction for the customer. And then that can seamlessly migrate over into a human and it feels a more natural progression for the human to jump in when the bot failed to answer the question properly for them. Um, So I think the bots will be, uh, sorry, AI will be really helpful at identifying who to talk to, what to talk to them about, uh, in suggesting the, the best conversations to have with specific people and getting very good at personalizing for them. It'll get great at helping us automate certain things like customer success questions that, uh, you know, they're just uh, repeating, somebody asking the same question over and over again. But I think it's important to say that ultimately humans are still really crucial. So I don't see the sales role going away. I see it being augmented in very nice ways by AI. Uh, At least that's what I can see in the near term.
0: Take away a lot of the boring work, like, (laughs) you know, asking those common questions, like, you know, where are you based? What's your industry? All that kind of stuff and I suppose, you know, creating Salesforce leads and Salesforce and all that other stuff that yes, people doing that, hate. doing that data entry
1: which salespeople hate, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so good, good.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, and I think particularly anything that can just allow, allow them to focus on the high-value conversations is going to be welcomed presumably by salespeople rather than… Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, great. Well, David, uh, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for taking the time to come and talk to us after your uh, talk here at SAS Talk. Yeah, it's
1: a real pleasure, John. Thank you very much for the time on your side.
2: You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.